Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the show, Ask a Leader. It's the September 9, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the entire show will be UCI Professor of Anthropology, Victoria Bernal, to talk about her recently published book, Nation as Network, Diaspora, Cyberspace, and Citizenship. For her, it is much personal as it is professional. We'll get into that on today's program. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to my show today. You're tuned in to Ask a Leader. For the whole hour, we're going to have on Professor of Anthropology at UCI. And if you're like me, you are in for a treat with how Victoria will take us from what little we know about Eritrea and some uh, other statehood issues uh, to a budding appreciation of what political participation is like inside and beyond that Eastern African nation. The subject of today's show will be her book entitled Nation as Network, Diaspora, Cyberspace, and Citizenship, recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Victoria Bernal researches questions relating to politics, gender, migration, and diaspora, war, globalization, transnationalism, civil society and activism, development, digital media, and Islam. That is how she keeps staying so busy as she does. But Victoria Bernal counts mentoring among her interests and has created and participated in a multitude of mentoring initiatives beyond UCI. Far from a helicopter academic, Victoria Bernal's extensive research funded by Wen Wenner Grand, Fulbright, the Rockefeller Foundation, the American Philosophical Society has taken her into the field to Sudan, Tanzania, Eritrea, and cyberspace. Now, I, I couldn't find on your Vita online where you got your BA and your MA. I got my BA from SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo, and my MA from Northwestern University, as well as my PhD from yeah. Northwestern University. The, okay, I had the PhD, and a lot of the, your colleagues only put where you got your PhD, but I, it's really important that we know where your academic arc is so that students who are tuning in, they know that everyone who's been on here who are forces to be reckoned with have all gone on different educational paths, so that's why I always make a point of putting that all out there. I want to mention that her PhD at Northwestern University where she was introduced to her first Eritrean connection. Victoria Bernal joins me in studio today. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you, Claudia. I'm happy to be here. Well, it was a treat. Congratulations on your new book. It's very engaging and an edifying read. Victoria, would you first give us a brief history and geography lesson of Eritrea, a, a nation of, and now I guess the sources vary between four and six million people. This will help put your research into context for all of us. All right. Well, just quickly, Eritrea is a country in East Africa. It was originally part of Ethiopia's empire. Then it was colonized by the uh, Italians for 50 years, after which it transitioned to a British protectorate briefly, and then uh, it, it was loosely federated back to Ethiopia. But uh, Ethiopia essentially 
violated the terms of that federation. And in the 1960s, Eritreans began what turned out to be a 30-year-long war fought on Eritrean soil for Eritrean independence. And Eritrea was uh, finally recognized uh, as a nation, as an independent nation, in 1991. So one of the things that I found very interesting in, in looking at Eritrean politics online was that Eritrea as a new nation was developing its national political culture and national institutions at the same time as digital media was becoming a part of people's lives. So, uh, so there's sort of an interesting synergy going on between the the uh, political development of the nation and the rise of the role of digital media in global politics. But Eritrea got a hop on that digital connection um, beyond what other nations, especially um, where where we, we saw the the digital divide getting crossed uh, with the Arab Spring. So I just want to it was it's you've just explained why in the 1990s Eritrea seized on this opportunity and is it, is it partly because the diaspora had uh, there were other connections uh, outside of the country and they thought wow we, we will just play with this but but they really it's it's very unique to other countries yeah well part of what I'm talking about in the book is my idea that basically two kinds of mobilities are transforming politics one the the geographical physical mobility of migrants and people being able to to move into various spaces across the world more and more easily because of transportation technologies and so on. And the synergy between that and the and digital media that can very quickly cross boundaries and connect people over great distances. So what, in the case of Eritreans, I mean, it, it, it's, they basically had a transnational social network that was connected with the liberation struggle that had been going on for 30 years, where many Eritreans fled their country for survival, for safety, as refugees and exiles and various things. But they remained very connected to each other as Eritreans and to the national leadership. And this was very important, that basically it was a, a nation that in many ways was kind of organizing itself transnationally, okay. where the diaspora were considered a component of the nation. And that has remained true up to this day. And, and I think that's telling us something interesting about how relations of citizenship are changing and how the role of migrants and diasporas is transforming our understanding, really, of what a nation is and of people's relationships to, you know, citizens' relationships to states. Exactly. And you lay that out so well in so many different kinds of uh, social functions. And I hope we can get into some. But I, the point of this whole interview, folks, is I am not going to steal Victoria's thunder because uh, I want everybody to get a chance to read this book that, that I so, so enjoyed reading. So to um, what extent d does the those in the diaspora, I mean, they, they all have different reasons for why they're still in well, they maybe they all have a similar reason for why they're they're still out of the country. Um, is there? Do you see that the preponderance of those in the diaspora do they ever intend to return to the nation Eritrea? I think, like most migrants, there's always a dream of return and a dream of a future Eritrea that could 
offer something to all Eritreans and to the descent to their descendants who've grown up in the U.S., in Canada, in Germany, in so many countries. So I would say that that dream is always there. Um, realistically, I think, you know, one of the interesting things was that when, you know, first the dream was getting national independence and many Eritreans who had fled the country or been stuck outside the country imagined that they would all return to Eritrea once it became independent. But that that didn't happen for a number of reasons, partly because the the country was war torn and had no no way, no resources, no way of really reabsorbing um, that that population. So uh, I think what we see going on into the future, too, is that the the dream is there and the connection is there. But people are participating as Eritreans as a diaspora in a way. And I think at some level that's its own, that's its own kind of belonging, its own kind of citizenship that, that maybe never will be re, reintegrated into the, the physical territory of the Eritrean state. And I, I, now just for you all to um, understand too, it is Eritrea, the word root is the Greek word for Red Sea. It's, it's hugging the Red Sea across the Red Sea from Yemen. So, uh, and it's just between Ethiopia and Djibouti and Sudan. Yes, yeah. Nestled in there. So everybody, run to your atlas, don't walk, so you follow us. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming at government uh, offices issue uh, passports uh, on the web at KUCI.org. And my guest for the entire hour is UCI anthropology professor and ethnographer Victoria Banal talking about her latest book, Nation as Network, Diaspora, Cyberspace, and Citizenship, recently, as I said, published by the University of Chicago Press. So you, for while we talk about the Internet, it's an important source because the media choices are heavily uh, filtered by the state, so what what if if not the internet what did people have to work with to to find out what's going on Well I mean one of the interesting things that uh I I was am looking at in the book is this uh, extremely centralized state power in Eritrea it's a very authoritarian regime there is no free press uh and there's very little there're very few outlets of any kind for spontaneous civic participation. Everything is is orchestrated in terms of public uh, political life. So cyberspace and the political websites created by Eritreans in diaspora, I argue in the book, come to serve as a kind of offshore political public sphere that offers really the only space where some kind of open uh, forum for expression for ordinary citizens exists. Now, when I say ordinary citizens, mainly uh, these are people in diaspora participating who are who are the ones contributing the content online. But the things that they write there uh, do circulate among Eritreans, and interestingly enough, are very much followed by the 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 leadership. In That's Eritrea. right. They're listening. Yeah, and, and the the two sides uh, of the of the consumption of the the cyberspace are those those that are posting as you talk about and those that are 
reading. And for the while, it was just, as you say, the government elites that were doing all of the reading. And so it was, uh, the, the, it was an interesting sort of a re reversal of, uh, of direction, leadership direction. So if you could, it's very important for us to know, just in a general structural way, that the, the web site choices that have evolved since the 1990s. Would you lay out for us the charters for the three websites upon which you focus? That's Dahai, Awate, and Asmarino, and that's in the order in which they were founded. So Dahai was the one that's, uh, that was the oldest, and that was the, the mouthpiece for the nation. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, this project evolved over over a long period. So initially, when I began, Dahai was really the worldwide internet connection for for Eritreans wherever they were. I mean, since then, there's there's you know so many different websites, but Dahai was really the one that established Eritrean online political culture. And one of the things that really interested me too was was the the uh, complexity of the kinds of political analyses that people were developing, the humor, the kinds of satire that people were writing about politics. And it, I, part of what drew me to this project in the beginning was really this idea that at one level, something on the internet is is published, is public, but at another level, it's really invisible. I mean, most, you know, unless you're Eritrean, you probably never heard of any of these websites and many of right. the, the leading writers who are uh, analysts and writing such interesting commentary, they're invisible in, you know, they're, they're around us in American life, sometimes working as parking lot attendants or taxi drivers or night guards. And I, in some ways, I, I love that idea of this sort of somewhat invisible realm of of intellectual and political activity that that's very powerful in its own way, but at the, some level it remains very hidden. Right. And so I think there's like a dual nature there that tells us something about the nature of the internet, where where things are both public and private, visible and invisible, and where the ultimate audiences of what we're doing, maybe somewhat like this radio show, we don't know, is one person listening or, or you know, 100,000, but, you know, it's, it's <laughs> indeterminate. And so, uh, you know, there's, that's just one of the elements that, to me, was very fascinating in thinking about how do we understand the role of media in in our lives and particularly in terms of questions of power and politics and when you mentioned that in your book and i thought well i'll bring that anonymity down in terms of my interactive opportunities with the cab driver something like that i i'm going to find out now so you uh, which which website are, do you uh, like to consume and are you have you posted anything like cuz invariably as you say that that they're incredibly sophisticated postings and and meaningful and we'll we'll talk a little bit without stealing the thunder of the book uh, what some of those functions are that the platform is uh, providing so uh, the high though it it was the sort of the official word and then it there became a little more critical contributions but um, how did the government? I guess there's this, there was self-censoring that had occurred uh, with what people might post on the die because the the uh, open criticism was not a cultural aspect of Eritrean the Eritrean lack of civil society. So that that changed a little bit. But then in that void of of uh, increasingly more critical commentary that was fomenting, then where that was where Awate and Asmarino came into being. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I, I track in the book is partly how 
you know, if we're trying to understand the internet, we, we have to realize it's not one thing. It has so many different possibilities and potentialities. And so one of the things I look at is how the way in which Eritreans used websites politically changed over time as their relationship of the diaspora and, and Eritreans in general to the ruling regime shifted. So one of the interesting things that I try to track is the rise of dissent. How do how do critical voices come to be raised and and gain some legitimacy? Um, and so one of the things that happened um, in uh, on the Eritrean websites was that there was a political crisis in Eritrea around 2001. And at and in connection with that, new websites sprung up that basically had a much uh, that basically legitimated dissenting voices much more. So I, I look at how the shift of from Dahai, which was really like a nation online, somewhat reflecting the dominant politics uh, in terms of its perspectives to websites that really were trying to change and transform Eritrean politics from overseas. So now creating, looking at websites as really platforms for civil society that could contest state power in through the internet, whereas Dahai in many ways had served to extend state power transnationally and, and, and through cyberspace. And the importance with 2001, that was following the border war that many in in country and then the diaspora realized was a, a, a sort of gratuitous uh, ravaging of the population. It, it, there was already the 30-year civil war that lo- where a, a lot of damage uh, was uh, had occurred and and lives um, lost. And so what the the concern that what was this war all about? And so it, there was an, a very essential need for people. A, to talk, to question why that war and to sort of lick their wounds. And as you said, you were talking about, it was wonderful in here, about the nation. Not only were they uh, squelching dissent, but there were also, in terms of the mourning process, that the martyrs could, uh, the, the families could ululate, were only allowed to ululate about the dead instead of grieve them. And ululating is a different feeling than a full on sort of grief-struck mourning sort of a process, so that the nation-state was circumventing that essential human need and trying to make the war heroes what they wanted and use them for their sort of propagandizing function, but but that need to, to really mourn was just a, a, a critical thing that the cyber sphere was able to, the cyberspace was able to offer that platform for. Yeah, just to give a little uh, sort of history and geopolitics to that, you know, after 30 years of war with Ethiopia, that that finally Eritreans were vic- militarily victorious over incredible, uh, you know, greater strength of, of Ethiopia and achieved independence. But Ethi- uh, Eritrea was had been Ethiopia's only only link to the sea. Their their ports were um uh, on the Eritrean Red Sea coast. So it, it, there were tensions continued to simmer for, uh, you know, even after independence. And in 1998, a war broke out on the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And so that 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 is the border war that uh, started in 1998 um, and ended in at the end of 2000. And coincidentally, 
I had just written yes. grants to go to Eritrea and spend a year conducting research, and I got funding from the Wenner Grant Foundation and from the Fulbright Foundation to do that. And uh, the Fulbright Foundation, which was the bulk of the funding, basically said, uh, you know, once the war broke out, they said the, the U.S. is evacuating all non-essential personnel and we won't allow you to go. I tried to say, you know, I I think personally I I would be safe there. I tried to argue with them, They're but, conservative um, about but they would not uh, release the funds for me, unfortunately, to spend a year doing research uh, in Eritrea. But that that's sort of my... Well, one more thing about that. And instead... You went to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where there, the uh, that national capital was ravaged by the Al Qaeda hit there, just within about six months of your arrival. So it's like you're you're not getting any kind of breathing room here, and <laughs> nor were the Africans, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, no, that that that's true. Yeah, I arrived in in Tanzania shortly after the U.S. embassy there had been bombed by what by people who now are seen to have been. Uh, part of Al-Qaeda or precursors to to Al-Qaeda. But, oh, so just backtracking a little, uh, you know, Claudia mentioned this concept of martyrs, which is used in a specific way in the Eritrean context. They use that term to refer to, basically, to the people who gave their lives in the independence struggle. But then it was later uh, extended to include the war dead um, in the 1998-2000 border war with Ethiopia. And one of the, to me, one of the most moving and creative things that um, Eritreans did online was uh, that the website awate.com created an online memorial to the war dead from the border war. And this was really important because despite the state's sort of eulogizing of martyrs and of citizens who sacrificed their lives for the sake of the nation, they withheld the information about how many people had died in the war, about the identities of the people who had died. Families were not informed. And so uh, what Awate did was not only make available to all Eritreans who could access this online, at least, um, the the actual information through leaked government documents that, that were leaked to them by somebody inside the government, they were able to reveal all the information. And they did so in a way that wasn't just like uh, dumping the information, but they created a memorial that, that with a lot of texts and symbols that really uh, gave it you know, a, a, a meaning beyond simply these are the leaked documents. So that was, uh, I think, a very sort of interesting and creative political intervention. And the value added aspect of the diaspora was to be able to use the iconic symbols from their um, host countries, like the Vietnam War Memorial was a part of the design there. So, but as you say, that's um, the, when we look later, it's, it's gone. There's some screenshots of that, but you can't see that anymore online. Or yeah, sadly, it, that's one of the interesting things that as you're, you know, as you're writing that things are disappearing as we're describing them in some ways. And, you know, we have that notion maybe that some things once on the Internet are are permanent, but that's not always true. Some of them really are are ephemeral and something that seems like an established uh, institution or even a even a very longstanding website may suddenly disappear and and not be there anymore and you never know when that's going to happen until you realize it's still not there 
I guess this is the tricky part. But and you were mentioning about the the data available that uh, that the government makes available uh, in terms of those that were uh, the war dead, but even the national census is not a disclosed detail. That's uh, is it, did I understand that correctly in your book? Well, there's I don't think there's been a census conducted. So that yeah, that's a kind so, of withholding yeah. uh, that yeah. has power there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, those of you who have just joined us, I have on Ask a Leader today with me, Victoria Bernal, talking about her latest book, Nation as Network, Diaspora, Cyberspace, and Citizenship. Now, I'm, before we go for a, a little station break and listen to a, a beautiful piece by Abraham Afewerki, uh, I wanted to ask you, Victoria, so who's, who do you intend uh, to be your audience for this book? Who'd you write it to? Because I, I, I found it to be really accessible, and I know how you academics can write. It's, uh, it's sometimes just totally un, unmanageable. But I think you, did you not make a concerted effort for a much broader audience? Well, I, I suppose at some level I wrote it for students. I know that some of the articles I've written on this topic are widely taught in different disciplines around the country. And so I think I did partly have it in my mind that that maybe this is this is something that a book that uh, people in media studies anthropology African studies uh, and so on might might want to teach and I happen to know it's already uh, parts of it are already on a syllabus at Berkeley this fall so I'm well excited done. since it just came out in August so in an anthropology very, course or yes yeah okay. so that's very gratifying um, and hopefully, you know, other people will will teach it too. But I did, I did try to to make it accessible, and also, I I had a sense that this could be interesting for a range of audiences for people interested in um, computing and internet studies, media studies and communication, as well as people interested in African studies and African politics. Um, as well as people interested in anthropology and really, you know, part of this kind of work that uh, I saw myself doing in this book relates to bigger shifts going on in our discipline as people, you know, many people think of anthropologists as just going to isolated villages and not and sort of very esoteric topics rather than uh, really looking at all aspects of contemporary life, including the latest technological developments in digital media and things like that. And and I, I guess, you know, that said, one of the interesting things to me is sort of combining, I mean, this notion that, you know, a population of Africans from one of the poorest countries in the world who many of them, you know, came as refugees and, and uh, fleeing the their war-torn country, that they would in some ways be innovators and, and pioneers in experimenting with what digital media has to offer for political expression and, and for, um, you know, organizing civil society in some way. And I'm trying to find here my notes where um, that the... the the uh, the GDP for Eritrea is a fraction of the the average GDP around the rest of the continent. So it's it's really it's really been ravaged with all the, the of the wars there. Well, I want to I think you should give yourself Victoria to credit that uh, another following could be grassroots organizers. They can see where uh, various institutions the voids can be filled and. A uh, discourse operationalized around dissent uh, and a, a kind of, a, as you say, there's a reversal of 
of the nation from within and the nation beyond that the diaspora. So well, why don't we take a quick station break, listen to Abraham Afwerki, Semi, I think that's the way it's pronounced, uh, a song, and we'll be back after station break. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. Back, you're tuned in to Ask a Leader, and that was Abraham Afawerki, and uh, he's uh, no longer living, so this is a, I just thought that would be a real treat to hear. So welcome back. My guest today for the whole hour is Victoria Bernal, professor of anthropology at UC Irvine, and if you are like me, this uh, it's a real treat to, to get just such an insight about uh, a whole realm that we're not even tapped into. So, um, it's, as I said, it's been it's a very edifying read. Uh, let's let's talk about um, the subject um, today. That has the has the cyber has it become any safer since the 1990s? And it was changing over the mid 2000s. What what have you uh, observed on the internet since you completed your book? Um, the, we'll talk specifically about the, the Eritrean diaspora and um, beyond. Uh, we'll, we'll talk first Eritrea specific. We'll get another opportunity to revisit that beyond. Well, I have to admit that after finishing the book, I've kind of taken a break from from Eritrean websites. Because you've mentioned how addictive it is for uh, expats to be following, but I imagine you just felt like every day you got what's going on now. Probably, yeah. yeah they're, and they're, can you read Tigrinya? Uh, no, I do not read uh, Tigrinya. I have studied it, and I I do. Uh, it's it has its own writing system, which is called a syllabary, which is the same is script that's used for writing Amharic, which is the dominant language of Ethiopia. I have studied it, but I never really had a chance to immerse myself. So I, I do not speak to Grinya. And one of the things I should mention that, um, you know, that facilitated uh, my research was that especially at the outset so much of the language of the internet was English, and Dahai was was all written in English. Now, um, people are able to, uh, you know, uh, post in Giz script, and so they can post in Tigrinya online. Some of the sites have Arabic postings online. Um, Eritrea, I should mention, one of the interesting things about it is that it is about 50% divided between Christians and Muslims. So that's that's one of the interesting internal divisions. And um, although the Muslim Eritreans are not native speakers of Arabic, it is uh, you know an important language to them as part of a lingua franca uh, and a language of Islam. So uh, conventionally, even from the days of the um, Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which was the nationalist movement for independence against Ethiopia, the uh, languages used were English, Tigrinya, and Arabic, and those have, you know, remained very important languages in the Eritrean context. What is, has it become safer? Because you've we've, you've talk about how there there was originally a kind of a self censorship. People didn't know. Uh, what to say and oh let me let me want to back up another important thing is that that it was very clear that the diaspora were using this domain this platform 
as a means not for like how do I get a better contractor to take care of my uh, uh, travel agency needs or something. They were all hungry to get basic information about what's going on, what's going on with the, the regime, what's going on with uh, uh, you know the collective national experience. That was not a water cooler of very casual kinds of content. So uh, that maybe you no, want to No, I think, I mean, and people, you know, within Eritrean circles, people also like, you know, criticize the, the, the presumption in a way that people really feel that they have the power to change things through the through the internet and through what they write. But there is a very strong sense. I mean, in from the early days of Dahai, they had a strong sense of participating to help formulate national policies and contribute ideas about development, about the constitution of Eritrea and all of these things. And then as, as um, dissent began to grow, over the course of the 2000s, uh, the politics on the internet became very much about how do we build uh, a movement against the regime? How do we transform politics? And sort of how do we expose the kinds of abuses that um, are going on? I mean, there and there are a lot of, you know, people being basically disappeared, held without charges or trial, um, subject to, uh, you know, horrendous conditions, indefinite military service for uh, the youth of Eritrea, where they're essentially conscripted and trained and deployed, sometimes in military things and sometimes in basically development projects as as unpaid labor. So there there are a lot of um, issues going on that people that uh, posters in the diaspora feel that they can raise to visibility not only among all of our, all Eritreans, but they also hope that uh, international journalists will look to these websites, and they do. I mean, I track in the book uh, uh, some cases where journalists are basically citing as their sources these diaspora websites. Postings. And part of why that happens is that there is such a tight control within Eritrea on anybody speaking out and on the kinds of information that the government makes available. So one of the, I mean, one of the things that this book shows is sort of the that how even a very highly centralized government with extremely tight control basically cannot shut things down. I mean, the Internet really has given people a new form of power that that is very hard for for governments to uh, to censor and and to control. And so the, they're not filtering it the way we know how other Asian countries are filtering it that you can tell. I mean, there must be people in Eritrea who can tell you what they're getting. Well, how yeah. They- I mean, the one of the big problems in Eritrea is that uh, you know not everybody has access to computers and and to the internet. And the Eritrean government has basically resisted opportunities to expand their bandwidth and different things okay. and have. Um, sort of tried to clamp down on the growth of cyber cafes and like you know, internet mm-hmm. cafes and so on. So yeah, there was actually uh, a recent article in the Bloomberg News, I forget the exact name of it, but basically arguing that Eritrea was one of the least connected countries in the world. And that's how, you know, that's because how they really gonna... are trying to, uh, you know, avoid people getting access. So I mean, they recognize that the incredible power of of the media. And as you say, though, there's life past that reading of the posting that there are other informal communication means to pass that message on. So it, it it's it's a gift that keeps on giving that the, 
the message keeps traveling through with the people in spoken word and, and other sorts of informal kinds of uh, arrangements. And it's the participation is not an equal opportunity participation. It took a while before women started posting. And they there were a lot of reasons why they needed to post because they were... Uh, they were martyrs in a, a, a even a more venal way than perhaps the men were th throughout the the Civil War and in the Border War and in the military training, the Sawa. So um, uh, you could maybe talk a little bit. I, I want people to read your book, but there, you could give us a little feel for how participation has sort of gradually eased in with what women would allow themselves to express in their postings. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters in the book looks at controversies surrounding essentially military allegations of military rapes within Eritrea's National Military Service Program. And uh, there's some it, it happened, interestingly enough, that even though most of the people writing online were men, that this particular issue was raised by women and i look at the kinds of responses that they're they're raising questions about you know is it true what we hear that girls are being raped in military service and so on and how uh basically the the other male posters attacked them and and in many ways just tried to silence them and sort of i look at the struggles thinking about how um you know cyberspace is not just a neutral ground that we project into it the same kinds of gendered ideas about the public sphere and politics as as a male domain and different forms of inclusion and exclusion operate. So I, I, I look at some of the struggles that women have faced even within the supposedly open sphere of of websites to to bring in their their particular perspectives and and experiences. It's it's really remarkable what those postings reveal in their whole diffident disposition towards um, what either they experienced. It's usually a personal kind of a posting. They're not saying I've heard from somebody else, but and so they're they're very apologetic and uh, diffident, as I said. And it's it's really remarkable. And there are immediate reactions to what they're posting. The women are it, it, it's so low key, and then they get thrashed by somebody it's it, what they just said was rubbish so it's a the interaction there it does really peg somebody down and then it it may dissuade them but then but that some of the other women come back with other postings to validate that and that validation is what's what's so so uh, very interesting in the in that sphere well for those of you who've just joined us my guest is victoria bernal uci anthropologist and ethnographer who's recently published Nation as Network Diaspora, Cyberspace, and Citizenship, here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all around the world in cyber cafes, on the web at KUCI.org. So you were saying that the um, this cyberspace now it's has, uh, it's moved on, it's a uh, there's, it's always changing and all that. And the reason that you wrote this book, the, the reason for your title is not to single out Eritrea, but to talk about the broader phenomenon of what 
cyberspace allows. So I would like for you to uh, take up um, what you would like the reader to see in uh, other nations, other dom- uh, other areas, and as well as what's what are real recent developments in uh, uh, dissent on the internet that affects even American political culture? Well, I guess uh, one of the things that that I think is interesting is, yeah, Eritrea might be a sort of unusual case or an extreme case, but I think it points to the kinds of creativity of ordinary people who are not given any official license or any particular authority to to take political actions, but take it upon themselves to try to change conditions, to try to do things, and that by somehow creating a certain sense of community online as they realize how how dispersed and disempowered they were within the Eritrean diaspora, being able to connect and, and have their feelings reflected back and sort of reverberating could build a movement could build, you know, sentiments and and sway public opinion and so on. So I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. And I also think, um, you know, just thinking about this, this is one case, but we know that countries around the world, you know, Haiti, Mexico, Colombia, um, El Salvador have very uh, significant migrant populations living outside their borders that they see as very important economic uh, elements and that they recognize, too, as as having political importance for national politics. So part of what I, you know, want people to think about is really how how both, you know, geographical mobility of populations and the ease with which people can participate in long-distance politics are really changing the national political arena in so many ways. So I think, um, you know, and we, so we have in many ways, you know, these sort of the sending countries that are incorporating diasporas into their national economies and their national politics in certain ways. And we also have those populations in, you know, in develop the developed countries of the global north changing yes, the, what, yes exactly what our composition what the global is south and is. the way we understand you know so it's really yeah the global south in the global north in some ways or the two being interconnected in in a new way i think is is very interesting and the fact that many of these things as i mentioned before are even though they're at one level public, at another level, you know, they're very hidden. Unless you know to go to particular websites, you you may be completely unaware of the very fascinating and interesting political initiatives that that uh, people are involved with. I what mean, is- the case of the Arab Spring with um, the Facebook page in um, that got a lot of attention with the Egyptian Arab Spring sort of drew many people's attention to the power of of the internet as a as a way of of particularly of getting around um, repressive regimes where it's dangerous to uh, demonstrate in public or uh, you know that kind of thing. And as you talk about the 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 assumption of a, a sort of a state responsibility that the diaspora has performing here on on the in cyberspace, you do talk about it rearranges the citizens relationship with the state and it's the citizenry uh, relationship with people amongst people 
and that's a real i mean otherwise the 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 pres the uh the leader would have complete control over setting up the uh that that relationship and the control that kind of thing so um well you talk about um a, a little bit you go out to some other countries but we also have we have dissent on the internet that uh ripped wide open with uh, you, you talk and you close in the book and about where uh, Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and others are bringing about a kind of a different oversight of what how how government is conducting uh, policy uh, and policies we didn't know existed. So what would you like to say as we're going to wrap up in it? We still have a little bit of time. Yeah, this is something very exciting and fascinating to me. The the um, the establishment of WikiLeaks and and um, Edward Snowden's leaks of the uh, NSA surveillance program. And I think, yeah, I had ended the book really throughout the book. I talk about this concept that I call info politics, yes. which is the idea that really struggles over the management of information are going to be fundamental to politics in the 21st century. And really the, the you know, WikiLeaks and, and the Snowden case were just emerging as I finished the book. And I think we've seen with more and more, as more and more have come out, more and more information has come out about uh, the U.S. government spying on its own citizens as well as on, you know, foreign allies and so on is just fascinating. I'm actually very interested in looking at the politics of digital privacy and thinking about uh, the surveillance state. And, you know, I started out working on Eritrea as a very repressive surveillance state, highly militarized and so on. And what I've seen, sadly, is is a certain kind of convergence where a lot of the things that we used to take as hallmarks of what separates, quote unquote, us, Western demo democracies from them, authoritarian you know, regimes. authoritarian regimes of the global south are really eroding. And we're seeing that the, I'm seeing the kind of behavior that would be typical of an Isaias who's the president of Eritrea, you know, being done by our own government against, you know, our citizens. So I think um, that these questions of uh, digital privacy and surveillance and the security state, you know, that that those those are really so similar to the way in which Eritrea's leadership has used the geopolitical dangers and the threats outside to prop up a highly militarized society and and militarized way of government. And I see some of those dangers in the kinds of things developing in our own society. So I think that's very interesting. I'm hoping to uh, actually do a research project focused on the politics of digital privacy and sort of shifting briefly, perhaps, away from uh, my commitment to African studies to really look at something in the center of uh, politics of the global north and, and the uh, what's going on in the U.S. surveillance situation and the kinds of uh, ways in which people are resisting this and trying to uh, protect and assert the right for citizens' privacy. I can't wait. I can't wait. And the way you're covering this book, I can't wait to see what you do with the with that next venture. Well, our, uh, you talked about the Berkeley, UC Berkeley uh, course. Are you going to be in the fall? What will you be teaching? And will you be... Uh, incorporating any of the ne the nation as network uh, text into any of these courses in the fall or later in the year 
Well, this, I have to say, I'm not teaching my own book this fall, but I hope to at some point in the future. But this fall, if there are any UCI students or prospective students listening, I'm teaching Intro to Anthropology, which is a course I, I love to teach. And really, uh, I use that course partly to uh, hopefully change your life, but also change how you think about anthropology and really show how the kinds of questions that anthropologists are researching have to do with contemporary human society and, and global issues and so on, not just some, you know, arcane, uh, you know, remnants of some lost age or something as sometimes you might get uh, that false image. The other class I'm teaching is a graduate seminar called Nation, States, and Gender. And that one, it's really sort of a feminist perspective on on uh, politics, uh, particularly in the global south. But, but well, uh, there's globally. your chapter, Sex Lives and Cyberspace. That, oh, that, that's true. You could, yeah. You could teach yeah, that whole may, chapter there. I may be it, able to work some of that in. I mean, I, that's that that well, and the, the I, I love it. The the chapters. I don't know if you're responsible or if your editor did that, but the the sex lies in cyberspace and the 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 mouse that roars to talk about the power of of the internet. Yes, that I was love great. cute titles. I worked I worked hard to. on my titles. <laughs> Those are yours. Well, bravo, way to go, Victoria. Well, then I it, we it begs to be asked: Are you going to be doing any book signings? Um, well, we're. I'm hoping uh, the anthropology department has been planning a book party for a number of my colleagues. Also, have books out recently, so I think we'll a group uh, sign. We'll do a group party, and um, there's maybe I know other people have sometimes done signings at the UCI bookstore. Yes, but so that's not so, that's, that's not something I might look into. Oh, yeah. you have to. Yeah. If you don't, uh, uh, somebody in this studio will be an agent for you to make sure that happens. Okay. So, so that yeah. that happens. Well, that's great. Well, I we think we've really about run out of time. So I want to thank you, Victoria. It's been a genuine pleasure this morning. Thanks for coming down and joining us on the studio today. Thank you so much, Claudia, for your interest in my work. Oh, Thank you very much. Keep me, uh, fight me away from this. So, uh, we're going to go out with a little uh, piece from. It's called, her name is Milin Hailu, and uh, she is an Eritrean singer, and it's a kind of a, it's a theme that uh, follows up with the sex lives and cyberspace in terms of hearing her voice, and uh, we'll hear that over our, um, some announcements, so stay tuned here. While we play out the show with the tune, Here's today's announcements. Sunday night, uh, I join viewers uh, around the country for a look at the film Disruption. Perhaps some of you saw it as well or plan on seeing it soon. It's dealing with climate change and the big rally that will be held uh, either on Saturday in Southland, California, or on Sunday in New York City. That's the 20th and the 21st. So if you want more information about that rally and start planning on being a part of that, you can either go to peoplesclimate.org or you can text 9 seven 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 nine and uh, we'll take up that rally as the topic of next week's show on ask a leader i'll bring on uci climate scientist steve davis and various activists from citizens climate change as we get close to that rally to be held in those locales i said new york city and in the south and i think even orange county is going to have a place that's all the time we have today on ask a leader talk with you next week thank you for listening I'd meet her again, can't talk to the baby girl who grew her in the
Yeah, you get if I on a bay no